Hello, Liturgy Guy listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and we have another great episode for you. This week, we dive back into those post-conciliar documents. And one quick note about this week's episode, we had some technical difficulties and we do not have a liturgy question this week. So I deeply apologize for that. But without further ado, episode 19 of season four of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. All right, guys, I think we should get back to this whole post-conciliar document thing that we said we would do. I thought you would never ask, Jesse. Yes. I was, I, I've been wanting to do that instead of talking about Dennis's uh, liturgy gripes. They're not gripes. They're teaching moments for the greater <laughs> perfection and beautification of the world through the liturgy. Save the liturgy. Save the world, right? So, sure. There you go. But now we're uh, we're going to go back to boring documents, right? Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to I hear about Tris Abinkanos. God bless you. I do, actually. <laughs> Wait, hold on. What do Trace, you want to hear about it? Trace Abhink. Anos. Anos. Tres. T-R-E-S. It's three. Mm-hmm. And years is Anos. And What's I guess Abhink is a go. Is that right, Chris? Sure. Good three years for the ago, liturgy, guys. That's how it starts. What anyway, happened three years ago? The liturgy, guys. Interocumenogy came out. And mm-hmm. we did one of those a few episodes ago. One on that. That was in 1964. It was a uh, that was the first instruction on the orderly carrying out of the constitution of the liturgy, right? Yeah. First one. Keep go, keep going back in time. What else was 1964 January? Uh, that was we, that we did thing we did from Paul the Sixth, right? Yep, Sacrum Liturgiam. Uh huh. And what was in December, Jesse? 1963. Jesse, the, the new missile. Oh, Jesse. Trellis <laughs> No, that no, no I know that I that know. one was in nineteen ten, right? Nineteen oh three. Dang it. Have we taught you nothing? November twenty second, nineteen oh three. At eleven thirty four AM. AM. Rome time. <laughs> D- December sixty three was Sacrosanctum Concilium. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then the next month, about six weeks uh, later, Paul the Sixth wrote Sacram Liturgiam, and that's where he gave some he says, Listen, the books need to be reformed, but there's some things we can do right away. To implement some oh, of these principles. No, no, Sacrum Liturgia. <laughs> Come on, Jesse. Okay? And so what he said in Sacrum Liturgia. I'm just telling with you now, for sure. Was uh, <laughs> you could start giving homilies, seminaries need to start teaching liturgy. You don't have to do the hour of prime anymore in mm-hmm. uh, the things that you could start to do before there were actual new ritual books. Right. And he also said in that Sacrum Liturgiam that I'm also establishing a, a group that will get together and actually do the practical reform of the ritual books. Called the Concilium. The Concilium. And so that came to life, I don't know, March or April in 64. And then in September 64, that Concilium wrote its first post-conciliar instruction called Interecumenici. Uh, I remember we, that. Yeah, yeah. we talked we talked about some of the things. Years, it took him, what, six months to do the first one. It took him three years to do the second one. Mm-hmm. So, and uh, that's where we are now. Tres Anos, May so, 67. You know, to see the forest through the trees here, basically Vatican II says, reform the liturgy. 
then they're so in a hurry. Paul VI says, some things you can do right now, even before we reform the books. Then the second one comes out, there's even a few more things you can do right now after we reform the books. And then by 1967, they already had one version of the missile called, we call the 65 missile. Um, and I don't know if they're relating to this in 1967 or if they're still using the 62 missile at this point. They are. Well, no. this is, what happened was there, there was a 1966 sacramentary, they called it. But that was really kind of an adaptation of the 62. It was basically the 62 missile still, as far as I can tell. Okay. Things get really confusing in this decade. Right. So they're trying to all, figure out yeah. what to do. Yeah. So little by little, the church comes out with these things. Now, one of the complaints that I've, well, I don't want to say I complained. I complained enough. But one of the <laughs> things I hear sometimes is people say, if you read Sacrosanct and Concilium, it doesn't say get rid of the maniple. It doesn't say get rid of X, Y, and Z. It doesn't say you can say the Eucharistic prayer out loud. It doesn't say you can use vernacular for the Eucharistic prayer. So how did these things happen? Well, little by little through these implementation documents, permissions were given for all kinds of things. And that is in a way the bridge between Sacrosanct Concilium and then the Missal of 1970 or 1969 as they call it. Mm -hmm. And so this one will give us a few of those things. Yeah. All right. Yeah. But, you know, on that point, this is what I found interesting from the beginning, uh, Dennis. So it says, Treza Pinkanos, three years ago, was this document called Inter Ecumenici. And a lot of the things that were put forward in there, the bishops tell us, uh, people are finding helpful. So, for yeah. example, one of the things in Inter Ecumenici was, you know, the priest didn't have to, if the choir sang something, then the, or the lector read something, the priest didn't have to repeat all of that. Uh, they, I think, was that where the prayers at the foot of the altar uh, and the final gospel and the Leonine prayers were omitted by uh, Inter Ecumenici? Um, and then some of the, the vernacular was introduced. So some of those things is what the Concilium is telling us here in Treza Pancanos. Uh, the bishops say these seem to be helpful. Right. The word is the rich yield is becoming quite clear from the report of many bishops. Uh, they said there's an increased, more aware and intense participation of the faithful everywhere in the liturgy, especially in the Mass. Now, I don't know anybody who was alive in 1967 and <laughs> remembers it, if that's their experience of fruit, aware, and intense participation, or if it was more one of unsettled chaos, but at least this is how it's coming back to Rome that these things are working out well, and so they want to increase, what does it say, increase, and even more to make the liturgical rites clearer and better understood, so they want further adaptations, and that's yeah, what this is about. But it is. See, that line is what caught my attention. It says, right, so the bishops say there's this increased and more aware participation and that's all good. And it says that these same bishops have proposed certain other adaptations. So these bishops write in and say, hey, this is working great. Why don't you consider some other adaptations too? Now, what do you make of that? Now it's your turn, Dennis. What, what am I thinking? Why is that no? Don't put me on the spot. Who do you think I it, um, sound, it sounds like they were like, let's not wait for things to actually be revised. Let's start doing this stuff now. Well, yeah, and these are the things that they could give permissions for without a whole new missile that took a few years to, to come out. I think in some ways, if you were a priest in 1964 or 1967, you probably were a little frustrated with these requirements. Oh, I have to say all this Latin stuff. And you, it was like odd accretions and things that didn't seem to be part of the of the right. Now, when you go to the extraordinary form now and you hear the last gospel, there's a sort of quaint pious antiquarianism about it but like if that's the norm even in the most pious extraordinary form places i've been there's kind of like oh mass is over but oh there's this 
reading and the priest is racing through and nobody knows exactly when he's saying verbum carbo factus mass and they're kneeling and standing and everybody wants to go but we can't because his reading's happening and it just must have seemed a little bit like not linear you know yeah maybe i'm sure a lot of people would object to you (laughs) on that point i'm very objectionable i realize (laughs) highly but you know what, what caught my attention in that was you know the, the concilium is supposed to be making these reforms based on sacrosanctum concilium. But now they're saying bishops are writing in proposing other reforms. Now, the reason that caught my attention was, well, on what basis is the concilium making these reforms? Is it the Second Vatican Council or letters they're getting from bishops in 1966 and 1967? Mm. You see what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. Or is it the same, right? The council gave us permissions to do some things and they're so good it's still within the council's norms to allow us to do even more so mm-hmm. yeah so which is it well i, I think it's, i don't know i, I, don't, I think it's a little <laughs> bit of both but whatever you want to say it is based upon you know the principle to be uh, followed above all others in the reform and restoration of the liturgy is the act of participation in the liturgy and that's how they start off this letter is what we've done so far in interecumenici has facilitated the people's participation kind of in that same spirit whether you like that word or not in reference to the second vatican council in that same spirit what about some other things that we might do to uh, continue to increase the people's uh, authentic participation. Right. And I, I think it's worth saying, and people do say this sometimes, especially the reform of the reform school, that's kind of the Ratzinger, Adoramus Bulletin uh, school, at least as it used to be, I don't know if Adoramus is still in the reform of the reform camp, that Vatican II has a certain amount of authority. I don't know how infallible you could say it was, but it's got a high level of authority. Now, when the Concilium comes along and makes some changes, they're kind of people's best attempt to do something prudent and good. And there's no sense of like, God says you must never have the maniple again because some bureaucracy of the Vatican decided that, right? It's permitted, it's allowed, it becomes the norm. But they can kind of be undone in a way, if it's prudent, considered prudent, that say Vatican II could not be <laughs> undone without a lot of work. So mm-hmm. uh, to think, well, just because Bonini and company said this is the new norm, therefore you're opposed to Vatican II if you don't think it was a prudent decision, not quite fair. So staying, trusting the mind of the church, but then being able to say, okay, these are secondary and tertiary decisions made in a hopefully well-intentioned and mm-hmm. prudent way. But if 50 years, 60 years tells you it's not working out so well, you can, uh, you can reverse some of these. Yeah, well, I think eventually we'll get to uh, the document by John Paul II, Vicesimus Quintus Annus, and he says the very same thing. He says, hey, it's been 25 years now, and the time has come to reevaluate a lot of these things that we've been doing over the last 25 years, in particular, uh, translations. You know, let's stop and look at, at the bodies who are doing this and how it's going, reevaluate and decide what we might need to do differently yeah. in the future. Imagine yeah, if your iPhone were 25 years old and you're like, but it's old. It's not working. <laughs> no, Vatican II said you must have a 20, this iPhone from 1967. I was like, well, no, maybe it's good. Maybe it's yeah. not. But, all well, right. So what does this thing say? Well, you know, I think this, this is how I'll, I have found it helpful to read this document. All right, so what you say is, you know, how they, how the rubber hits the road with the concilium and the changes they make, um, you know, hu- their actions of the church, which include human beings, okay? But they're based on, I think, some more conciliar principles that are helpful 
going into this. So I don't know that you'd want to quibble with the conciliar principles, although certainly some people would, even though you might uh, want to evaluate uh, how they were implemented. But I see in this three conciliar principles that kind of contextualize some of the particular changes that they make in this letter. Oh, now I know why right. Marguerite married right. you, Chris. Okay, so the, we have another Chris list. The three, <laughs> the, the, three the principles I've already mentioned, right, is that the, the the conscious, active, full, authentic participation of the people is is a goal. All right, so they have that in mind. The second. Right, and this is starting to sound like a broken record, even to, to the degree I never noticed before. They talk uh, one, two, three, four, five paragraphs into this, Dennis, about the capital principle of church mm, discipline. The magnum principium, you might say. Well, this is a different magnum principium, oh, okay. I guess, but you'll know what it is. It's from Sacrosanctum Concilium 22. So the first one was from 14, of course, about active participation. Of course. The second one is from number 22. Regulation of the liturgy depends solely on the authority of the church. Therefore, no other person, not even a priest, priest. may on his own add, take away, or change anything in the liturgy. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. (laughs) All right. So that's the second. That's what 22 is all about. In this, uh, in this. And I, and I think it was a cultural thing as much as an ecclesial thing. It's just kind of this desire for change and newness and out with the old and in with the new. Is you see this principle in every document that comes out is, hey, everybody, this is not up to, what's the word they use in uh, another one? It's not up to your preferences and idiosyncrasies. Mm-hmm. The capital principle, what they call it here, and the grave duty is another expression they use that needs, that befalls to people. There's a joke that, there, Jesse. You missed it. Sorry. Is <laughs> that uh, the uh, regulation is uh, belongs to the church. Now, right. And you know who else said that? Pius the 12th, Pius the 11th, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Pius the 10th, Benedict the 15th. Every yeah. one of the documents says, remember, regulation of the liturgy solely is in the hand of the Holy See. All right. So with those two, now listen to the third one. This is from Sacrosanctum Concilium 50. And they don't cite this, but this one really seems to be kind of uh, the character of this letter. So it says, the rites are to be simplified, mm-hmm. due care being taken to preserve their substance. Elements with which the with the passage of time came to be duplicated or were added with but little advantage are now to be discarded. While other elements which have suffered injury through the accidents of history are now to be restored to the vigor which they had in the yes. early days of the fathers. That's, That's a definition of beauty. Useful right? or necessary. So I think with those things in mind, active participation of the people, the uh, regulating authority of the church, and how they're going to apply these principles to, well, what is it that is complex and needs to be simplicated, uh, simplified? What is it that's been duplicated that needs to be clarified? Mm-hmm. What is it that's been omitted that needs to be reintroduced? So when you go through then the, the particular things that they're going to change or add or eliminate, it's kind of in that spirit. This is too confusing. We're going to simplify it. This has been omitted. We're going to reintroduce it. Right. So here's an example, right? You go to an extraordinary form mass and the altar boy brings the, what we call the lectionary from the epistle side to the gospel side, right? So he has to pick it up, go over, genuflect, bring it to the other side. Every time you pass the tabernacle, they genuflect, which is very pious, right? And we we love the uh, Christ and the blessed sacrament. But you can see if you have to do that about 50 times every time you move, it might be unnecessarily complicated and distracts attention from the action of the mass. So somebody says, all right, well, now you genuflect in the way in and the way out 
and and that's good for the whole thing right simplification now some people say that's not as pious an approach to the blessed sacrament and so that's where you can discuss it but at least it gives you an example of what they're trying to do hand kissing right some rites you had to kiss the hand of the priest all the time and boy things took a long long time yeah well let's go through some of these things that they you gave a couple of examples you can see uh, what well, you talked about genuflex it's uh, genuflections says the celebrant genuflex uh, like five times all other genuflections are omitted yeah what, now, what paragraph number is that oh that's uh, number, uh, seven. number seven yeah you know so I, I, I readily admit I'm not as familiar with the extraordinary form or preconciliar liturgy as you know I wish I, I wish I were so I don't I mean how many genuflections were there see but then but you're, what you said before I think is right Dennis I mean I think People of good faith and orthodox faith can say, well, well, how many is too many and how many is too few? What's the right, what's the right balance? Right? And same with uh, the kissing of the altar. It's a, the, uh, this is at number eight. It says the celebrant kisses the altar only at the beginning of mass and at the end of mass, and the kissing of the altar is otherwise omitted. Okay? Same with number nine, signs of the cross. It says here at the offertory, after offering the bread and the wine, the celebrant places the, uh, on the corporal the paten with the host and chalice, omitting the signs of the cross with the paten and with the right. chalice. So and I I've think seen that offer- before, where they actually take the chalice and make, sure. with the chalice, make a sign of the cross. Oh, yeah. No, that's uh, in the rubrics for the extraordinary form. And then it says uh, he leaves the paten with a host on it on the corporal. Because I think what happens was at the offertory, the priest would place the host on the corporal directly on the corporal and take the paten and put it partway underneath the corporal. So the host isn't on the paten anymore. The host is on the cor- on top of the corporal and the paten is beneath the corporal. Mm-hmm. Okay. Hence corporal, so, right? <laughs> well, body, but I mean, so what does that mean? What does that signify? Is it an authentic signification of the mystery that's being celebrated? And is it um, a type of sacramental expression that uh, clarifies this to the people who might see it or not? Right. And but so, again, they're taking the, yeah. that, that, that sacrosanctum, num- sacrosanctum concilium number three, elements that have been uh, unduly duplicated or to be simplified, things that have been added that aren't clarifying things or to be omitted, things that have, have been omitted in the passage of time are now to be re-added again. But wait, 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 Chris, wait, wait, wait. All those genuflections, that was a sign of the awesomeness of God, who is the king, our Eucharistic king, who is reigning on his throne, on his altar, in the tabernacle. And if we just walk by him like he's not there, isn't that not very uh, pious thing to do? Or if if you take the chalice and make signs of the cross with it, isn't that just reinforcing the notion that the cross is the place of the sacrifice of the blood of Christ that we're about to drink? Yeah. Well, I... uh I don't know, Aristotle was a pagan. Good point. <laughs> of course, but it's a line that virtue's in the means somewhere, I think. Yeah. And that, but again, as you said, this is where people can discuss how, ma- how much is too much and how little is too little. I mean, you know, certainly that... To talk about Aristotle's definition of beauty, as, the, as you say, the mean between extremes, but also it's uh, the, the reasoned harmony of the parts so that nothing could be added, taken away, or changed, but for the worse, right? Mm-hmm. So if you take too many away and it's suddenly less than it was, that's a problem. If you add too many and it's distracting and not what it is, that's a problem. So finding that middle is really hard. And so I think for people talking about liturgy in their dinner tables or whatever, hang around in there. (laughs) Who's doing that? Oh, you know, people do. Thanksgiving, Christmas, whatever. um, To say, okay, I like the old way. I like the new way. All right, well, fine. 
what's the nature of the thing? What's the best way to bring it forward? Was the concilium in the modern movement and they were simplicity was a value over complexity. Certainly that was part of the time and the things that they were. Interested. Oh, it was. And I think you can make a good case for, <laughs> you know, the, even the constitution says on a number of occasions that uh, the signs and symbols should be easily understandable by the people and not require much explanation. Uh, well, that, that's kind of a, we talked about enlightenment and what you call it and darkenment. Uh, in dark well that's a good thing yeah okay uh in a in a previous podcast but you know the the enlightened mentality was you know people shouldn't need any explanation and i think to a certain degree modernism which was you know the spirit of the day believed in that and so i uh, my opinion is that in the reform of some of these things a lot of the the signs were too many of the signs were were jettisoned. Mm -hmm. And I think you can find this, um, a, the, a, a good example of this uh, is, is the Book of Blessings, right? So I think, I think people's sense uh, is just that they're just, the signs were altogether lacking and just a little too thin and too anemic and too right. wordy and too heady, too, too verbose to, to, to the extent that the Congregation for Divine Worship I don't know, maybe it was in the 90s or even the 2000s, said that when a priest or deacon gives a blessing and he gets to the word bless or to bless, he's to make the sign of the cross, even though it doesn't say that in the <laughs> right. actual book. Right. Because I think people recognize that you need, it's almost as if, you know, you went from one extreme to the other. You know, perhaps uh, a multiplication of signs and symbols that, that weren't making the essence clear to too few of them which weren't making the, the, the mystery apparent. Yeah. So, there you go. They're choosing to, if, you, if you're going to say error, I don't want to say error because that means I'm saying they erred, but they're choosing to emphasize the simplicity. Remember Paul VI said that in his um, address the night before, the week before the new missile came out and he said, for modern people so fond of simplicity, they find speech. this refreshing, you know, like a palate cleanser almost. Then once the palate's cleansed, we're like, oh, I would like a really layered and nuanced, you know, sort of meal, not just a palate cleanser every time. Well, so. I think I think that's this is uh, editorializing here. Oh, good. But I'm an editor after all. Yeah, uh, Jesse, you're a young person. You can you can speak to this True. too. But I, I think insofar as millennials do care, <laughs> those who are still practicing their faith, it, it's these types of things that they desire. That um, you know the the signs of the transcendent that uh, seem to have found their way out the door in the in the in the decades uh, after the council so yeah. you know incense nah, i say nah nah, nah. you want no, you're, 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 a craft beer that's what no, I you're, want. you're absolutely right and i, I mean i kind of say this to my friends when we're talking about all of this that uh i i don't have any baggage from pre-vatican II, and so i don't i don't, I don't have it do yeah i don't i don't have any of that like what was it like or whatever and so my my whole focus point is like, well, what's what does the church say, and then how do we best do that? And I think that's the that's the beauty that I see in all of this. Did I mention well, on the podcast that uh, our friend Father Dan Steele 
he was telling me why he liked a cassock. Did I, did we talk about this here? I don't think I so. I don't think so. Well, you know, he's a priest a few years now, but he, once he was ordained, he stayed around for STL and he wore a cassock on Mondelein's campus a few times, which always causes a stir. You know, what, what statement are you making? And I remember when I started there 20 years ago, there was a kind of fussy, prissy kind of womanish <laughs> interest in cassocks among seminarians sometimes. And uh, I asked him why he was interested in that. And he says, so this is 15, 20 years later. Yeah. 20 years yeah. later. And I think I can say this in a podcast. He said, because they're badass, man. And I was like, why? And he said it reminded him of Keanu Reeves in... Um, oh, The Matrix. The Matrix, because <laughs> he's walking around. Oh. And, and, you know, like the movies take these medieval inspiration, long black coat. They're like the, the badass clothes, you know. And so he saw it totally differently than people would have uh, earlier. And it just tells you what a, a generation will, uh, will change their experience like that. Hmm. I said ass on the podcast. Um, just said it again. Man, I don't know what to do about that. Well, I guess we'll figure it that'll out. That'll be your prudent decision. Just like all these prudent decisions we're making here, talking right. about in the liturgy. Okay, so what else about Trez Abhink? Well, yeah, let me, let me just mention a couple of other things that I think the commentary we've just given you know, can be context for this. So number 12, after the consecration, celebrant need not join thumb and forefinger. Yes. Should any part of particle of the host remain on his fingers he rubs the fingers together over the patent right so what is that all about if you see an old chalice there's a, a node on the stem it's like a big lump and that was how the priest could hold on to it when he had his thumb and his finger together so you imagine carrying a chalice around with the, the last three of your fingers it was not uh, very elegant or easy that's exactly what a uh, teenage mutant ninja turtle would do because they only have three fingers we'll see there you go and somebody must have said, you know, I guess there was a medieval piety that in case there's a particle of the Eucharist between the priest's fingers, he should keep them together lest they fall out and get profaned somehow. And then I guess 500 years later, they're sort of like, well, you know, if there are any, he can just rub his fingers over the patent. <laughs> and then when he cleans the patent, they'll take care of that. So, uh, yeah. Well, no, no, it's, uh, I don't know. I don't think it's a medieval piety. I think it's a. Uh, it's older than that. Well, I mean, it, it may have been, but, but I, I don't, and maybe you didn't, maybe I heard this differently, that only medieval people would have think would thought that, but modern people don't think that. But oh, no, I just meant people, that it was maybe oh, something yeah, that okay, came that's into the That's its Sure, period. sure. Yeah, so again, I think um, the, the principle is, uh, you know, the Eucharist is a, is a precious thing. What's, what's the right and reasonable way to sacramentalize that when, you, when you're touching the, the sacred host and you're a priest at the altar? know is it holding fingers together is it making sure they're clear by cleansing the or the top of the chalice I, th I think you can you can apply the principles to come to different conclusions but yeah and sometimes you see priests will actually take their fingers and rub them on the uh, corporal mm -hmm. for the same reason sure sure so there are many ways to be respectful yeah. of the precious of the, yeah. the precious blood in the body of Christ without having to hold your fingers together so they decided I guess that that was uh, something yeah. that could go Here's, here's a couple more. Number 16, at the end of the Mass, the blessing of the people comes immediately before the dismissal. I think we may have talked about this we before. We did, but I'd say more because I forgot. Yeah, I think the, the genesis of this is the people would be dismissed, uh, ite misa es deo gratias, and then sort of on the way back to the sacristy, the priest would give blessings and maybe bless the servers back in the sacristy, and somehow that got appended on to the end, kind of the last thing of the Mass. So you'd say... Uh, you, you'd be dismissed, and then you'd receive the blessing. But now they're switching those around, so you'd receive the blessing. So the dismissal was actually the dismissal, the very last thing. 
And again, so you can see how they're trying to clarify through words and signs and symbols and gestures the essence of what's going on is that dismissal means dismissal. Now you take this and couple it with the removal of the Leonine prayers or um, you know, the last gospel. Again, it's trying to clarify the reality of being sent out into the world and, and the rest. There's a couple others. But believe it or not, there are people who argue with that one, but uh, I'll oh, save sure. that for another day. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, let's see. Um, maniples no longer required. No. Does that mean yeah. it's abrogated or just no longer required? Or just no longer required. Yeah. I don't know the answer to that. Um, I My read of the documents is, is if they wanted the priest to wear the maniple, he, the documents, the germ would say to wear the maniple, but they don't mm-hmm. say that. Mm-hmm. So I, I Is that I would maybe take like a, an allowance to keep doing something if you wanted to, maybe? Well, that's a, that's a difficult question. You know, so for example, in Adoramus, we're running this series by Monsignor Mark Karen. Uh, and it's, it's about the, the gestures and postures and actions at the Mass. And it's based on this line in the germ that says, um, you know, all need to follow the prescriptions that are laid down in this general instruction and in the order of mass and what is contained in the traditional practice of the Roman rite. All right. So in that little line, what's contained in the traditional practice of the Roman rite is a new insertion into the third edition of the Roman Missal. And it seems to me it's 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 kind of one of those uh, hermeneutic of reform pieces you know, that if you want to understand what the council was trying to do and what it was trying to do in its post-conciliar books, you have to look to what happened before 1963. You can't just start afresh in 1963. You need some kind of historical context. So uh, there's, um, I think there's, unless it's explicitly clear, I do think there's a little bit of gray area because sometimes you need, I mean, the, the, the ritual that we have now is contextualized in 2,000, you could even say 3,000 years of history that need to be taken into account. So it's not obvious always, at least to my mind. Right. Father so Z argues question. that the maniple is a permitted option in the ordinary form, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. I, he doesn't give a footnote at least here. So uh, yeah. we'd have to ask him how he comes to that conclusion. Yeah. But I think in the end, if you read Trez Abhink Anos, you know, what they're trying to do is facilitate the people's participation. They're trying still to maintain this Roman centrality. And they're also now trying to get down to the details of, of what, what duplications need to be simplified, uh, what, uh, what uh, other confusing things might need to be omitted, and what, uh, what, what elements from uh, the, the ancient church in particular need to be uh, reintroduced. So, that's what they're up to in Trez Uphink, Anos. Alrighty then. So, little by little, through the 60s, these permissions come. And, like, letting the Eucharistic prayer be said out loud is given Mm -hmm. permission here, also in English. The Eucharistic prayer was always silent in the history of the church, as far as I know. And so, um, if you want to know how did Sacrosan and Concilium become the missile we have today, these post-conciliar documents are how, how it gets there. Now that's a podcast. The Liturgy Guys is brought to you by the Liturgical Institute at the University of St. Mary of the Lake, Adoremus, Society for the Renewal of the Sacred Liturgy, and the Center for Beauty and Culture at Benedictine College.